So uh, when I have been preaching here at Weavertown of late, I have been preaching from 1 Peter. So you can open your Bibles there if you uh, don't have them there already. I've entitled the sermon today, Living Like You're Born Again. Now where we are in 1 Peter is this. Um, Peter opens up this epistle, this letter, to the uh, believers that are scattered at the variety of places that they have dispersed to because of the uh, impending destruction at Jerusalem. The believers um, took the impending threats to, to heart and dispersed. And they went up north of Jerusalem and the land of Israel to uh, Asia Minor. So there were lots of believers scattered here and there uh, throughout those places. Uh, Peter, we believe, was in Rome when he wrote this. And he uh, addresses these people who were under uh, persecution. Suffering is the word that he uses. Trials. Um, those sorts of words that he uses to describe their, their situation and their condition. But he opens this letter uh, by talking and giving them some facts, things that are true. So let me just sum up very briefly where we've been so far. Since you have been elected by God, he says, hand chosen by him, according to verses 1 and 2, he has given you a living hope, according to verse 3, and it's a hope that goes on and on. It's a, it's a hope not only for now, although the hope that we have now is incredible, it is only a foretaste of the eternal inheritance that will be given to us in the future when we get to heaven. It's an incorruptible inheritance. And even though we suffer here on earth, the suffering is temporary. It is something that's not lasting in comparison to the inheritance that is forever. It's lasting. That part of it is lasting. And where we were the ended the last time in verses 10, 11, and 12 of 1 Peter 1, we can see that the gospel message, the good news of salvation, the fact that we have been saved is something that the prophets predicted would happen throughout the Old Testament. The prophets predicted this. Faithful messengers took the message that the prophets spoke and preached that message to, uh, faithfully preached that message to people wherever they were. And the part that I find interesting is that even the angels look at this story, this part of history, and ponder it. They're amazed by it. So those are foundational principles of theology for our theology that um, Peter lays out for us as readers, as hearers of what he wrote what he wrote so long ago, and uh, is immortalized here in Scripture. Now when we get to verse 13, where we are this morning, where we find ourselves at the beginning of the service here, at the sermon, there's a shift. And I want you to notice in verse 13, he begins with the word, wherefore. And that denotes a shift. When we find that word in Scripture, he is saying that because of what precedes it, there are, there's a consequential result that comes as, um, that follows what has been written before. The word therefore and the word wherefore are probably pretty much interchangeable. And that's how he begins this passage. Therefore. Now I, um, this week came across the story of Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a, uh, a favorite author. Some of you maybe recognize the name. And he was, um, 
he writes a story of short stories, uh, as well as longer stories, but he writes this little short story of how he grew up in Scotland. And as a boy, he was uh, living along the, uh, one of the main streets in town, and on a particular evening, he was looking out the window, and this being before the days of electricity, for example, now the streetlights come on by themselves. At that time, of course, they didn't have electricity, so there were actual people who were employed by the town to light the lamps. Like I said, a little bit different than today. And one evening, he was watching these lamplighters who were carrying their torches and their ladders, and they would uh, set up the ladder under the street lamp and light the lamp and move on to the next one until they were all lit. And young Robert Louis Stevenson said to his mom and dad, he said, look, he said, the lamp lighters are punching out the darkness. That's a little bit of a great visual, I think. It's a visual for... Um, maybe our lives. How do we go about? How do we live in the dark world that we are in? And it is a dark world that we live, in which we live. How do we punch out the darkness? How do we live in this dark world of ours? What does it mean to live as if we're born again. So I've taken the approach to this study so far, pretty much on a verse-by-verse -verse basis, moving our way through the first chapter here, and I can intend to continue that today. And beginning at verse 13 is where we find ourselves today, and he begins by saying, Wherefore, Gird up the loins of your mind. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? How can a person gird up the loins of his mind? What does that mean? Well, it's an old phrase that I think can modernly be translated, roll up your sleeves, is something that we would say. It, the, the idea of girding up has the idea of belting up or cinching up, getting ready for what's next, becoming mentally prepared, pulling in the loose ends of your thinking, getting rid of things that hinder forward movement. That's what he's talking about. Think clearly. Think clearly. Prepare your mind. That's the first point that I want to give here in this section. He follows that by saying in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And the idea isn't only a confrontation to being intoxicated or being drunk, but rather has the idea of being thinking clearly, being under the influence of the Holy Spirit being uh, morally decisive under good judgment, not bad judgment. Um, behavioral scientists tell us that our subconscious mind governs how we actually live our lives, or it governs our actions. How we think governs our actions. And um, there's many, many studies that uh, on this particular issue, and I guess in my mind I say, that's great. I love these kinds of studies. But to a Christian, to a Bible-believing person, we could just say, well, sure, the Bible says that in numerous places. How we think governs how we live. Proverbs 23, verse 6, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. In other words, what we believe, how we think, determines how we behave. And Peter here is saying that we need to have sober thinking. We need to have preparation of mind, mentally sharp. Some of you remember when the first people walked on the moon. I don't remember that time. It was in 1969, a couple of years before I was born. 
But some of you remember that time. You remember reading the news about the space capsule landing on the moon and Neil Armstrong and his friends getting out of that capsule and literally making footprints on the moon surface, the dust of the moon. And some of you possibly remember what was said. I think they were in contact with people from the earth at that time, and Neil Armstrong said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The headline in newspapers the next morning said, we have conquered outer space. And people were so amazed and proud of the accomplishment. Peter here says, it's not so much outer space, but Peter's saying inner space needs to be controlled. We need to think clearly. We need to think hopefully. We need to think correctly. Inner space. The rest of verse 13 goes on to say, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that there's something coming down the line. We need to think about that. That needs to dominate our thinking. It's pretty easy for us to get caught up, probably the same kinds of temptation that the believers here in Asia Minor had. They were under persecution, they were under suffering, and it's easy for them and for us to become focused or centered on that, what we're going through at the moment. But Peter challenges them to think in the bigger picture, think ahead, think for the, about the hope that's coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's why that's important. The Christian, yard, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. And there's numerous places in the Bible where it mentions and talks about that fact, that it's people that endure, people that, that last, that people that keep going. They're, they're the winners in the Christian life. It's a long-distance um, race that we're in. <clears throat> what keeps us going, what keeps us motivated, according to Peter, is, should be the fact that Jesus is coming again. We'll meet Jesus at the finish line. That's, that's the motivation for the Christian. When we get to the finish line, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. The second thing that he talks about here is that we are to not only prepare our mind, but we're to shape our conduct. Now we go from the mind to the actions. That's the correct order. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What we do, what we think in our heart, comes, turns into actions. What we do comes out of our thinking process. Peter says in verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourself, or not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts of your ignorance. And he goes on to say, because as it is written, verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversations. Um, more modern translations use the word lifestyle or actions. The word conversation there has not as much to do with talking as it does with uh, living. There's a part that he says, there's a positive part in this instruction and a negative part. There are certain things that we do as a result of this hope and a certain aspect, conversely, that we don't do. Not conforming yourself to the former lusts. That's the part that we don't do. Have you ever stopped and remembered? I think there's many in our midst, many have, um, maybe you were older when you came to the Lord, and you have a greater appreciation and understanding than, of this fact than perhaps I do. Even though I did many things that were um, sinful and bad, uh, I don't remember specifically a time not thinking that I would not follow Christ or not wanting to follow Christ 
not wanting to be a Christian, or, yeah, as a younger person, I had that motivation and that desire. But here, Peter, I think, is writing to people that are, were born again later in life, or just the fact that they're born again, I think we need to think about what life is like, or what life was like without Christ, what life can be without Christ. Ephesians sums it up in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, and, 1 to 3. Paul writing here, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's a description of all of us without Christ. Regardless of when we accepted Christ, regardless of how we came to the Lord, that's, that's a picture of life without Him. And Peter captures that same idea, and he says that without Christ, we fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that's what we're not to do. That's the negative part of that. <clears throat> In the passage here, verse 14, he says, We did it in our ignorance. I don't know for sure what can be said about that, but I think there is something, yeah. Sin can become a very blinding thing. And when we're in sin, we tend to make excuses for ourselves. When we're not thinking correctly, it, turns, it can easily turn into ignorance, darkness, or unawareness. 1 Peter 1.14 You didn't know what you were doing, would be another paraphrase. You didn't know any better. Now you do. And because they know, they know better now, there are certain things that they don't follow after, things that they don't do. There are people that we used to hang out with, now we don't. There are things that are just not good for us anymore. There are internet sites that we used to visit, but now we have no business occupying that space. There are books that we used to read, now we leave them alone. And the word no, N-O, is very much a spiritual word. And it's something that as Christians needs to be a regular part of our lives. We say no to the things of the past. We say no to the lusts of our flesh. But that's not enough. That in and of itself is not enough. Just turning from sin, turning from things, is, is not enough. We need to conversely turn, say yes to God. Look at verse 14. It says, obedient children. I love that, that phrase. It talks about the fact that there is a father who knows who is in charge of our lives. We say yes to the Father. As obedient children, He's connecting us with our Heavenly Father. I love that. We're to be children who are obedient. Verse 15, But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct. Holy. Be holy. That's the command. Holiness. That's a word that we hear a lot in our songs. We hear it as we read Scripture. We hear it in our teaching. But I think, frankly, it's a very churchy word. It's a word that perhaps we don't understand as well as we should. Holiness. <clears throat> Holiness is a reflection, um, according to this passage. It's a reflection. A family resemblance. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conduct. We should emulate the Father. We should look like our Father. Uh, 
When I was younger, um, I don't hear it so much anymore as time passes, but when I was younger, I remember many times being um, in a group of people, perhaps they were strangers to me, but people would look at or introduce themselves to me, and they would realize that I was Wilmer's son. Occasionally, they would make mention of my grandfather. If it was an older person, I discovered as a young person that there was a certain standard that was placed on me. I was indeed my own person, but um, I was, there was a certain level of expectation that was placed on me because of whose biological, who my biological father was. And that is true spiritually as well. It's true spiritually for all of us. There is a level of expectation that's placed on us, on you, because of who your father is. The fact that you're a Christian um, puts a responsibility on you. It puts an identity on you. And when people see you, do they recognize you as a Christian? Do they see you as somebody that um, has a higher level of, or is there a standard that's placed on you as a result of that? We are children of our Heavenly Father. And I think that to live a holy life simply means that we look at our lives and we say, I want to live up to that standard. I embrace that standard that's placed on my life. And conversely, when people see us, as we go about our lives, they say, wow, that person must be connected to God somehow. And I think maybe even on yet another side, God the Father looks down on us and with satisfaction says, that's my son, that's my daughter. Sort of like he did with Jesus while he was here on earth. At least two times there's um, indication that Jesus was doing his thing here on earth and a voice from heaven said, that's my son. Holiness is a reflection. It's a family resemblance. As he who is holy has called you, so be ye holy. I think another way of looking at holiness is the idea of completeness. Um, Well-roundedness. There's parts, places in the New Testament where holiness is described, or the new birth, being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is described as being um, perfect or mature is the word that's often used in that same thing. There is a wholeness that comes as a result of being holy. Completeness. I think the closer we follow God, the more we pursue God, the more we become a complete package the more our life becomes a complete package. When we pursue him, we start emulating him. We start living out his traits, the family traits, if you want to use that term. Spiritual family traits become uh, noticeable to others. And people can look at us, maybe sort of like in my stage of life now, sometimes I'm at places where my children's friends are around perhaps, and I look at that person and they say, mm, they kind of remind me of someone else. And I can almost attach them to their parents because I see their actions. I see their mannerisms. It's the same thing that God, or that's, I think it's the same picture that's implied here in First Peter, where people see us and they're made to think of our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> the third thing we see here in this section is The idea of focusing your will. Focus your will. Because it is written, he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. There's something in the previous verse that I want you to notice now. At the end of verse 15, it says, Be ye holy in some of your conversation. Wait. No, I read that wrong. It says, All manner of conversation. All manner of conversation. That means all of it. And I just, to be sure, I looked at the Greek word for all, and it means all. 
That's a very big responsibility. Be holy in all manner of conversation, all manner of life. The Phillips translation says, in every department of your life. That means that when Jesus is in our life, he comes in to live as a resident. He becomes a... He, he lives there. He is not a tourist. Uh, for example, in our guest house, we uh, have renters, and even though we give them the keyless entry code, they can come into the house. There are still rooms in, in, that, in our guest house that are locked. Uh, they don't have access to certain places in the house because we just don't think it's necessary for them to be there. But that's not how it is in our, in our hearts. When Jesus comes in, he wants the keys to the entire house. There are no places that, are, that should be off limits. There should be no locked doors in our heart. When we receive Christ in our lives, he lives there. He is not a tourist. He is not a renter. He wants access to the entirety of the house. All your conduct. Not some of it. Not most of it. All of it. That means it is God when I wake up. It is God in the shower. It is God at the breakfast table. It is God in the car. It is God in the office. It is God at the job site. It is God in the classroom. It is God in the meeting room. It is God in the bedroom. All of our conduct. All of our conduct. According to verse 15, all manner of conversation. Holiness is letting God conquer our inner space. And when our inner space is conquered, our outer space is probably going to be just fine. Focus your will. I want to also call attention to the first words of verse 18. The first, yeah, the first words in the King James Version, for as much as ye know. Some of the other translations just use the word knowing. Knowledge. Knowing. He talks about this a little bit earlier when he makes mention of the fact that we should be aware of the hope that's coming, the impending judgment. And I think that word has the idea of correction. So we shouldn't be bogged down in the things that are going on around us. God is going to bring a correction to all of those things. He gives at least two reasons in this text on things that we're to know. First of all, our knowledge is based on Scripture. He says, as it is written. Or because we're aware that it's written. The Scriptures. Written Scripture. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus here. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So Peter is anticipating his audience knowing this Scripture. Knowing written Scripture from Leviticus. God said so. That's why we do it. That's why we live different lives. That's why we live lives that are focused on, on Him, under His power, under His control. Why do we do that? Peter says, because God said so in his book. That phrase, it is written, is found at least 80 times in the Bible and Coincidentally, most of it is in the New Testament referring to the Old Testament. I think that's something that's interesting. Secondly, we focus our will by basing it on the future. Um, I already alluded to that. It's based on the fact that God is going to bring correction to the situation. The situation as we have it now is not the finished product. God is going to bring correction to it. There's a day coming a day of judgment, a day of correction. And I want to uh, transition now into what I have kind of as a second or next section here in our um, text, in our sermon here today, has the idea of building on that correction. And it, Peter, 
in verses 18 and following, the next couple of verses here talk about that redemption, the, the uh, restoration that God is bringing into our lives, or is in the, the process of bringing into our lives. The way things are now is not the way that it will be at the end. Those of us that are in any kind of difficulty, it's easy for us to focus on what is now. Peter is calling us to looking beyond that, looking to, to the, the redemption. And he transitions right into that. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. Most of the challenges of, the day, of our day, the, the t- of today, the, the, the challenges that we face this past week and the challenges of next week have to do with things that are here today, gone tomorrow. They're corruptible. They're temporary things. Peter says that our redemption is not based on things that are temporary. And he says it's based on a bigger picture than that. Not things like silver and gold. Even things that are very important in our lives here today don't hold a candle to the riches in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Redemption infers value. Um, the word redemption as it's used in Scripture and even in our language implies that it is, there's some sort of value that's placed on, maybe even just intrinsic value. For instance, at a family sale, or let's just imagine that your uh, estate or your father, your parents' estate is dispersed and someday, sometime or another you are at another sale and the object the item that you know comes from your parents' estate is up for sale. You are motivated to buy that, not because of its actual value, but because of the intrinsic value that you place on it. That same idea is true for our redemption in Jesus Christ. Redemption implies value. We are bought back or set free in the case of slavery or um, that sort of... Um, part of the definition. Set free. It has the idea of being uh, paying money to, or paying something to produce freedom in us. If you're a slave, or something that, in that uh, maybe a prisoner of war or something. We are precious to God. Another aspect to think about would be the picture of house restoration. An old house. Instead of pushing it down, you spend more money than is necessary to restore that house. God redeemed us. The old house that we live in is worth saving, Peter is saying. We're not redeemed with silver and gold, corruptible things, even though they're valuable. But we are saved with the precious blood of Christ. The next thing that he talks about here is... Our conduct, again, he comes back to that, how we live. He says, we are saved from our vain conversation. There's that same word. Conversation, our way of life, our aimless living, the vanity that we lived in without Christ. We're saved from that. Praise the Lord. Without Christ, there is no purpose. Without Christ, there is no um, destination beyond Uh, the moment that we're in. We see here in the text in verse 19 that we're saved with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The price is Jesus' blood. Our value comes from the fact that we're loved by God. Not because of what we owe. It's not the own. It's not things like silver and gold and our holdings. But we're saved with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What did it cost? The price tag that God placed on us was the blood of Jesus Christ. And why does he say that that price was precious? Why was the blood of Jesus Christ precious? Because there was no other. There is no other son He is the only begotten Son, the Bible tells us. There is no other way. 
He is the only way. His blood is the only way for us to, to get to heaven, to get into that right standing. Jesus Christ is the only person who never sinned. He is the only person who lived a perfect life. He never committed a sin. Notice what it says, without blemish and without spot. I think those are two different things. I think blemish is something that we are born with. Spot is something that, we, that comes on us. For example, if you're wearing a piece of clothing that has a blemish, it would be something that was inherent to the fabric before it was made. A spot is something that you get on your clothing after you're wearing it. You get in contact with something that, that uh, makes it dirty. But Jesus, he says, is without blemish and without spot. He was not born in sin, and neither did he sin. He did not commit a sin. It is also very interesting to notice, and I'm just going to take the time to um, just go into a, a, a little bit here. The, the story of redemption in Scripture is just such a fascinating, fascinating story. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve blew it, they became aware of their condition, and God set out to do something about their condition, and he clothed them. Now, um, the text doesn't test, but I like to imagine that it was the skin of, well, it was the skin of an animal, but it was perhaps the skin of sheep or a lamb. In that case, it was one lamb for one person. The skin of the lamb became the, the covering for Adam and Eve. And as time went on in Exodus, there was time for the deliverance for, e for the children of Israel from Egypt, and there was the institution of the Passover, and God commanded them to take a lamb, to have it under observation in their house, to take the blood of that lamb after it was killed and put it on the lintels and on the doorpost. And the lamb became a redemption for one family. In Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, there was an, a, a ritual that was gone through by the priest where a lamb was killed and offered, and that lamb became the atonement, the redemption for the, the nation. But in John chapter 1, verse 29, John is preaching and doing his work there along the Jordan River, and Jesus comes onto the scene, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. One lamb for the whole world. I find that very, very much a blessing. One lamb for the whole world. And John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we've already talked about this. Sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, He says, is come, comes as a result of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ on our lives. When the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our lives, The sin stains can be removed. <clears throat> I'm reminded of the familiar song that we sing. It was written by Robert Lowry in the 1800s. He says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the price. In verse 20, we have the fourth factor, and that is the result of God's foreknowledge. And we've talked about this in another sermon from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And we have the same idea again, God's foreknowledge. Jesus was foreordained is the word that the King James Version uses. Other passages or other translations would say that Jesus was predestined to die. That means that God, in his knowledge, God knows everything. I can't imagine that. But God knows everything. And as a result of that knowledge, he designed redemption. It's easy for us sometimes to stoop to the fact of, or to the thinking that, okay, the world was created. We're amazed at the power of God in creation. And then it, we, it seems to us as if God lost control somehow, and Adam and Eve sinned, 
And God looked at it and said, they blew it. I have to come up with plan B. That's not how it was. The Bible indicates that God in his foreknowledge knew all of that. Again, mind-blowing. Revelation says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. I can't understand that, but it was always God's plan. Redemption was always in the plan of God. And then there is, I think, verse 21 says that our part in this is believing. Notice verse 21, who by him, that is by Jesus, we believe in God. Jesus was raised up from the dead and was exalted. God gave him glory. And our faith and hope comes as a result of that. I don't think I'm going to take the time to talk about that further. In verse 22 now, I want to just notice a sixth thing that comes as a result of redemption. And it says that when our hearts are redeemed, it indicates that there is something that takes place in our relationships. When we have a new heart, our thinking toward others changes. There is sort of a paragraph here by itself in verses 22 to 25. And there is a, I think, in my, I look at it, I think the the phrase that sort of sorts itself out to the top is the phrase, the sincere love of the brethren. That's core. And I ask you, do you love the brethren? Do you love other believers? Are other believers the core of your relationship? Do you have that love for other believers? And I want to just sort this out just a little bit. He follows that by saying that we are to love each other fervently. It's sort of a repetition of the same idea. In verse 22, Seeing that ye have purified, or seeing that you have been redeemed, and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren... See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. He's saying, reiterating the the same concept that he said before. There's pairs here. The word unfeigned has the idea of being not fake or not being painted over or something glossed over. And then he repeats that idea by using the word pure. And that word means sincere, without wax or gloss, without some kind of It's in its original condition. And the um, word love there is, um, interestingly enough, there's different words used there in the Greek. The unfeigned love has the idea of philia, love. We're familiar in our area here with the word Philadelphia. Um, The city of brotherly love is, is that comes from that word philia. It has the idea of being connected with other people. And on the next time he uses that, see that ye love one another, that's the word agape. That has the idea of sacrificing or giving something up for the sake of the relationship. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. And that's where we want to end here today. In the... um, I want you to to notice several things as we close here, and that is the command here, the instruction, is in the present participle. It's not something for down the road sometime. Once we straighten out our arguments, we are to love now where we are. I find that very, very challenging. I don't have the time to uh, show you scriptures, although I might repeat just a few of those. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the commands of the Bible, there are many commandments, many instructions on how we're to do this. Jesus said, a new command I give you, that ye love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. That's a powerful statement and something that I have much to learn about. The principle is that salvation, redemption, affects our relationships. When we have a new heart, we have a new relationships with other people. Our salvation 
should affect every area of our lives. Hudson Taylor put it this way. He said, if your father, your mother, your sister, or your brother, he said, even if your cat or dog cannot, does not realize or is not happier because you are a Christian, Hudson Taylor says, maybe you're not a Christian. Those are not the words of Scripture, but I find myself agreeing with that. If the people around you cannot tell, maybe it's time to do a check. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. The last aspect that I want to point out here is the aspect, uh, the numerous references here in this passage to family. And I find this very interesting. Notice in verse 21, he talks about loving our brethren. Person you're sitting beside here in these pews this morning is a family member. The person that I interact with Many times, I need to be reminded, it's a family member. And they say, you know, blood runs thick. Even though we maybe have disagreements or arguments, at the end of the day, we're going to be, that blood produces loyalty one to another. And verse 24, um, I'm just going to just, yeah, I think I'm just going to move on here. The, the, there's, you can look at it for yourselves. There's at least uh, five places here in chapter one where it talks, or it implies that we're related, or it talks about our father, for example, there in verse uh, 14, as obedient children, we have, we're related but the family aspect, we're part of a family. And now watch this. In verse 24, he says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. For, he says, or because. Because. He's giving us a reason for loving other people. And again, he draws this idea of the temporary aspect of our lives. It should be a motivation for us to love each other. It should be a motivation for us. We're not always going to be here. The relationships that are torn and tattered in our lives are temporary. We should think about that. Our lives are temporary. And how we go about our lives impacts um, should be impacted by that knowledge that we're not here to stay. We're, there's a limited amount of time that we're given. And he quotes Isaiah 40 when he talks about this. He says, this is the gospel. This is the word of the gospel. I'd like to pick up on this the next time I preach. There's at least five or six times here in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 where he calls in, where he talks about the word. And I'm not going to take the time to talk about this today. But good growth requires good food, in other words. This is word that was preached unto you. And if we want to grow in our lives, there has to be good food. This book, the Bible that we hold, this is, this is book. This, these are the words. This is the word that feeds, fertilizes our love. We need to be familiar with it. It needs to impact all of our lives. The Bible, the word in which I hold, gives us instructions for all relationships. It talks about relationships to children. It talks about relationships to spouses. It talks about how we're to love in our marriage, in our friendships. It talks about how we should interact with our parents. It talks about our interaction with government. Peter picks up that idea a little bit later in chapter 3. It even talks about, the Bible even talks about the physical love that is to be experienced and realized in a marriage. Song of Solomon. Check it out sometime. How to love. Here's Peter's point. That God's word was preached. He was proclaiming that word to them. It gave them life. 
And it's God's word today that brings us life. He says it's an incorruptible seed. It is something that is going to have effect. It's an eternal seed. It's an imperishable seed. The seed that he's talking about was planted in our hearts. It is germinating. It is making a difference in our lives. And it's important for us to yield to that. I want to just close now by reading verses 22 to 25, and then we'll come prayer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the, as the flower of grass. Grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. If you're uh, able, I invite you to kneel as we pray. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We pray for your guidance, for your direction as we go through our lives today and in the coming days. We know that we need your help. We are in tremendous need of your presence and the filling of your spirit. I pray that our love would be grown, our love for others, our love for you would develop and become fruitful and We just uh, commit ourselves to you. Thank you for the love that you extended to us, the redemption that you gave to Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would be um, a firm and fixed part of our lives. And as as we go about our lives, I pray that um, our relationships and the things that we deal with in our lives would be impacted, first of all, by that uh, relationship that we have with you our Savior and our Redeemer. I pray this all through Christ. Amen.